Welcome to A Magical World with me, Sterling Moon. I am a medium, diviner, folk magician, and educator on the mystical and strange with a background in advocacy and activism. Join me as we explore weird and wonderful aspects of our world and highlight inspiring people who are making this world a more magical place to be. I am so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Welcome back, my loves. I hope that you enjoy the heck out of this conversation that I'm going to have with my friend Akemi here in a moment. It's tender. It's vulnerable. I learned a ton about not just the things that, you know, Akemi is passionate about and the ways that she's making the world more magical, but she was so generous with her, her sharing of stories about her family, about her culture. And it was just, it's a, it's a journey of a conversation. We cover a lot of ground. This is going to be one that's going to remain special to me for a very, very long time. I mean, I'm just so grateful to be able to do this podcast and that people are willing to come and talk to me about the things that they love. It's such a gift and such a joy. Now, before we can get to this wonderful conversation, we got to talk about spooky season, babies, because you may be thinking, Sterling, it is it's July but we are in spooky season. I don't care that it's a glorious summer day out there. So quickly, I want to run through some of the things that I have coming up because the two questions that I get the most frequently, particularly since I published my book with Llewellyn, Talking to Spirits, A Modern Medium's Practical Advice for Spirit Communication, the questions that, that pop up in my email and my DMs most frequently are, do you take students or apprentices? And do you take, do you teach mediumship and spirit communication? I don't take one-on-one -on -one apprentices at this time, but I do teach in small groups. The one time that you have the opportunity to study mediumship and spirit communication with me in a longer term fashion is coming up. It is one of my programs through my school, Modern Mediums. My school is called the Sterling Moon Divination Academy and yeah, the, the wait list is open. So if you are thinking you'd like to study with me, and especially if you're thinking that you'd like to study with me, not just for six weeks, but maybe also have an add-on in-person event where we get to do, we get to practice the things, do some paranormal investigation, do some hands-on like folk magic, cleansing techniques, have a good old fashioned seance, explore history of the area that we're in. Because I have to tell you, if you care about hauntings, you need to also care about history. Beyond the Veil is the other component that's coming up. So if you want to study mediumship with me, Modern Mediums, it is a six-week program, virtual. You can participate from anywhere. We It'll run from September, I think it's either 1st or 7th through October 12th. And then if you decide that you want to go even deeper, there is an in-person option in the beautiful Colorado town of Manitou Springs. It is a mediumship and paranormal weekender. I rented a glorious mansion where we will be spending our time and practicing. We'll be exploring the town, taking some tours, doing all kinds of fun stuff. That is going to be October 20th through 21st. You can only do Beyond the Veil if you've gone through Modern Mediums. The waitlist is open. The application opens to my waitlisters. 
on July 15th. You'll get a couple hundred bucks off of the registration price. And I also have some special bells and whistles that I have not announced yet. So if you are interested, go head on over to the show notes. I have to have everything that's linked down there. And if you're not totally sure, if you're ready to like dive into a six week program, I have three kind of one-off opportunities that you can maybe try out. I am teaching a spirit communication 101 class at Ritual Craft School on July 20th from 6.30 to 8.30 PM. That is a virtual class. I am also so incredibly honored to be teaching a workshop um, at the Salem Witchcraft and Folklore Festival. It's an online event with just teachers and instructors that I respect so much. And I am going to be teaching a class on folk magic remedies for haunted spaces on August 4th from 10 to 12, uh, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern time. That's going to be, that's going to be pretty early for me in Colorado, but I am going to be so excited. I probably won't sleep at 94. And then lastly, if you're still just kind of wanting to feel out my teaching style, go to my website and check out uh, the first two lessons from the free month of mediumship that I'm, I'm running. Uh, it's a, it's a challenge where it's just self-paced exercises that are fun. They're fun things from my own personal practice that are just meant to kind of like help you dip your toes into the water of practicing spirit communication. And so uh, if you want to like get the notices about the, the exercises as they come out, please sign up for my email list. That's always going to be the best way to keep in touch with me anyway. You can go to sterlingmoontarot.com. There's a little subscribe box at the very bottom of the homepage. But um, yeah, there's two lessons that I've, I've put up on my website. And again, everything is linked in the show notes. So again, it is spooky season. Modern mediums, beyond the veil, come to a one-off class, either through Ritual Craft School or find me at the Salem Witchcraft and Folklore Festival. Although don't just find me there. Like, please look at the lineup for, for the Salem, the Salem thing, because it is unbelievable. And there's so many good instructors and then go ahead and do the month of mediumship. It's free. What do you got to lose? All right, my dears. I'm so grateful that you're here. I hope that you love this conversation. One little heads up. One thing that Akemi is very generous with her knowledge about and um, generous with her, her, her sharing is her own family's history of, um, with the internment camps of Japanese, the internment camps of Japanese Americans during world war II, And just, if that is something that is, uh, is maybe part of your own history, your own lineage, and that's like a sensitive point, uh, please just take care with that. And, um, we don't go into any like graphic details or anything, but I know that these are tender topics and I know that, you know, these are things that affect a lot of families out there. So just enjoy this conversation. I hope you learn a ton. And I'm so grateful to Akemi for everything that she was willing to share. Thank you so much for listening. Well, I am sitting here with my friend, Akemi Tsutsui Kunitake. Did I get that right? Uh, yeah. Almost. Okay, probably. So I was joking with Akemi that I have to be really careful with last names since I had, for those of you who listened to the, the Plant Yenta, Yenta episode with Michelle Vanderhauen, I, I've known Michelle for seven years and I discovered that I had been mispronouncing her, her name for that entire six years. And so I get like all anxious about last names right from the get-go. But I am getting to sit here with Akemi, who the very first time that I met you, I it was at one of the ritual craft markets. And 
there was this young woman who's sitting here with just this massive display of these beautiful ink illustrations. One of them is still hanging in my in my son's room. I think it's of a, I believe it's of a fox. It's really, really cute. And they were just so different than anything that was that was around the market. They they were whimsical, they were fun. And as I've gotten to know Akemi a little bit, I it's just so interesting the ways that your it seems like your art definitely, you know, is in, influenced by both your own folk, folklore being Japanese Japanese American, but also like, you know, just storytelling and uh, it, it, mysticism and magic. I'm so excited for this conversation. Akemi is also like, uh, would you mind introducing yourself for folks that maybe haven't had the pleasure of getting to know you? Uh, my name is Akemi and <laughs> I'm uh, born and raised in Denver, Colorado. Um, but yeah, I am an artist. Uh, I always say like I'm a, I'm a multidisciplinary artist because you know I am an illustrator not technically, because I've never worked in the illustration field, but my work does tend to have an illustrative sort of feeling to it. Um, but I'm also a karate cut, which is the term that's used for a karate practitioner. Um, and then the way I think about karate and the way I've been raised to think about karate, because my family is um, also, we have a school, Colorado Budokan, um, and that it is an art form as not it's not just like a exercise um and it does incorporate like elements of budo which are like the elements of martial arts as well as like fighting um but also that it can be an artistic practice as well um can I ask you a question about that because I'm having this memory of you were in a competition was it in 2021 where you were like in a national competition where you shared some videos of you on your Instagram page and we were like this is going to be a little different but I remember it was, it was so beautiful yeah so it was uh some videos from our nationals uh and for juniors which is like uh 12 to well 12 is the time that you can start competing for the United States but 12 to uh 21 those are juniors that is their team trials but for seniors for the discipline of kata, which is what I do, 16 to 34, um, to 35, that is our team pool trials. Um, so you're trying to make the top six in the country to qualify for the team pool. But what the videos were of was of me doing kata. And kata is kind of this, uh, it is a practice that is in a lot of traditional Japanese arts. So not just karate, but there are other martial arts that have kata. There's ikebana kata, so flower arranging kata. There are uh, tea ceremony kata, but they are essentially forms and ways of moving and practicing that have been passed down through many generations to effectively convey a, like, the knowledge of the art that you are practicing. Um, the way I kind of talk about it is that it's a physical history rather than like an oral history. And so it retains in itself like the key characteristics of the style that you are practicing. But what's really interesting is that when you look at kata over time, like originally the early katas, the focus is on exclusively application. So it has a particular aesthetic to it. And then I think of it kind of like as like 
what is it like Maslow's hierarchy of needs mm-hmm. kind of thing where now, um, you know, physical application is not as important, um, but you're delving more into the realm of arts and athletics. And so things start to look a lot cleaner. There's more variety of muscle contraction, um, things about like, oh, this, this is a nicer line, but all of the movements in themselves should be the same as they were back in the twenties, the like 1800s, et cetera. So, um, and there's a concept called um, bunkai, which is application. So you Mm -hmm. should be able to see the correct application of the movements in the kata, regardless of what time period um, you are looking at the kata. So yeah, that was um, those videos in short were. That's of, so cool. That is so incredibly cool to be able to, I don't know, historical movement. That's rad. That's really rad. So how yeah. does, see, that's obviously, I mean, you were probably practicing this from the time that you were teeny tiny. And so that is like an art form that's been, you know, coming with you through your whole family. How far back does your fam, has your family been practicing karate? Yeah, actually, so relatively new um, for like certain karate families, like um, so my father was the first practitioner in our family, um, and he is my sensei, but, uh, and he started kind of late. So he started at, um, age 18, um, mm-hmm. in Denver and, um, he, so in, in Denver, like after world war two, there was a, um, like kind of a settlement of Japanese Americans here, um, for a, a, few reasons there's kind of two different communities that settled here one is sort of pre-world war ii this is i guess going really far back for for like a cut let's do it but um so governor carr uh was governor of colorado and he was one of the few politicians who spoke out against uh executive order 9066 which was franklin d roosevelt signs executive order 9066 and it orders the incarceration of all individuals of japanese american or japanese descent two-thirds were American citizens, and the other third were Issei, so first generation, who are not allowed to become citizens. Yeah. Um, but Governor Carr is like one of the few politicians who says like this is unconstitutional, which it was, and mm-hmm. it was effectively political suicide for him because he did have presidential hopes. But he says all um, j- the Japanese are welcome in Colorado. And so there are communities and like a lot of families who like m- packed up all their belongings and like drove in the middle of the night to get to Colorado as a safe haven. Wow. So that's one of the kinds of settlements of Japanese Americans in Colorado. Yeah. The second group actually did get uh, incarcerated in the camps. Um, and there was one here, Amachi, that people came to. But then after they uh, released the incarcerees a lot of them chose to stay in Colorado um my family was one of those so we were incarcerated at Tule Lake first which is in California but uh the family got split up a lot so there's a lot of history of you know is you're you're given a family number rather than going by your last name yeah so 
taken to different areas, but you know, some people are married, some people like move different places. So um, eventually my, my grandfather, he was drafted and he served in the MIS, the military intelligence service. And so he was stationed in uh, Minnesota before he was, he went to the Philippines to do translation work. But my grandmother was there, and but then the rest of the family was in Amachi because as they kind of moved, they went to Jerome also from Tule Lake, and then they went to Amachi, basically kind of collecting family members to try and consolidate the family. Yeah. And they got to Amachi. And then after the war, um, they uh, went, tried to go back to California where all of their fishing, um, excuse me, <laughs> all of their fishing boats were gone and they were not able to kind of, uh, you know, it would have been impossible and to resettle back where they were from. And so they chose to stay in Colorado. And so just giving up everything, like all of their livelihood, it sounds like. Yeah, basically. I mean, you were given after the camps were, released uh you were given $25 and a train ticket to anywhere but you know where could you really go because you didn't have your homes you didn't have uh any of your belongings because when you went you had to just take whatever you could carry yeah and uh yeah so my family were fishermen they had boats and uh everything but they entrusted it to a good family friend and who pretty much just sold all of it screwed him over yeah so I'm like wanting to pull back my hair and take I mean I know this was a long time ago but like I hope every single person listening is like ready to again pull your hair back take out your earrings and put on your (laughs) put your rings on because this is it it will never it will never continue to it will never stop horrifying me these stories and so anyway please continue I'm so grateful that you're sharing this with me and anybody who's listening of course um so yeah, they were not able to go back to Terminal Island, which is, um, it, it was like a fishing community, uh, kind of near Los Angeles. Um, and so they chose to stay here in Colorado. And so my dad is third generation Japanese American. Yeah. And so, you know, in different ways, I think the community uh, rebuilt itself. And so in Denver, there is Sakura Square. Um, which is the remaining uh, little bit of what was our Japantown. And on that square is the Tri-State Denver Buddhist Temple. And there's a lot of, um, my father remembers like just when that was a really vibrant, booming community. And so they used to have like talent shows and stuff there. And one of his key memories, um, again, he was like in his late teens, was he was at this this talent show and he kind of heard this weird sort of sound it was like and it was like okay I'm going to investigate what is this and he went looking around and what he found was um sensei Yaguchi who is um a Shotokan uh sensei Shotokan is a style of karate he was warming up backstage to demonstrate later but the the power from his body um was going into the ground and vibrating 
through and then that zoom was coming out of the mic um, <gasps> and that was just such a kind of um remarkable and like like you know it gives you like goosebumps kind of oh yeah my dad had always had um you know I think being a minority and also uh, there's the narrative of uh, weak especially like Asian men um he had grown up uh getting in a lot of um like schoolyard fights and different sorts of things so he had always sort of been um attracted to fighting because you know you had to yeah um but our family was so poor that he could not uh he wasn't able to take classes or lessons and stuff yeah. so at the point in his like late teens he was like okay I need to learn this I need to learn this from this sensei and so he started training with sensei Yaguchi um in Shotokan which um of the uh major um recognition like I guess internationally recognized uh karate styles is known for explosive power um but uh trained with Sensei Oguchi first, and then through other um, like life events, ended up going out to uh, um, Irvine, California, where he did his um, bachelor's, um, bachelor's of fine arts in photography. Um, and, that, and there he had uh, Sensei um, Kiyoshi Yamazaki, who was uh, also of Shotokan and Shindo Jinedu, um, karate style so he trained out there in California for a very long time and then under Sensei Yamazaki he uh trained for the world championships and my father is still to this day the only American male to ever medal at the world championships in kata so that discipline that we were talking about before wow. um, so that is kind of um it's hard to actually talk about I think my individual practices as a karate practitioner and as an artist and et cetera, without kind of giving a lot of background for my family. It um, all matters. Sort of like a legacy. Yeah, absolutely. I love, and I'm so grateful that you shared the whole thing with us as well. I mean, that's what a freaking story. And also, yeah, I goosebumps, full body goosebumps, just thinking of being able to hear the energy that for that someone else is producing, like coming through a mic. I mean, that is just Amazing. So let's start leaning into a little bit of your illustrations. And I know you said you're not an illustrator, and yet I don't really know what like what else to call like the beautiful work that you do. So how did that start? You've obviously got this beautiful like lineage and history of your 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 movements of karate, and then how did how did the like art on paper start to to come into your life? Yeah, so very much in the way that karate is kind of part of the fabric of me, um, because I did start karate when I was three. Um, I also started drawing when I was very, very little, as like many artists are. Um, but uh, I think there's kind of like this um, narrative maybe of like, when you're little you're drawing and then you know outside forces kind of tell you oh like it's supposed to look this way or it's supposed mm -hmm. to look that way then like kind of the natural artist and the natural creative in people gets squished and they are um you know not able to pursue that sort of thing. I remember getting a satisfactory like an s on a coloring 
like we were coloring in, in kindergarten and because I wanted my character to have green skin and yellow teeth and purple hair mm -hmm. and it was slightly outside the lines I remember bringing it home to my mom who's an artist and boy was she pissed <laughs> I was like so devastated that I got like an unsatisfactory no it was an unsatisfactory in coloring I'm like who does that to a six-year-old or a five-year-old <laughs> anyway yes it does get squashed to how sorry to interrupt yeah, um, but I, I guess I was super uh, fortunate that um, my parents um, actually valued um, me drawing. Um, you know, I did mention that my dad has a background in photography, yeah. so he has an artistic eye. And then my mom also just put a lot of energy into, like, guiding me and raising me towards um, the things that I enjoyed and that I seem to be naturally good at. Um, and I'm also, it's uh, kind of important to note that I'm an only child. And so, you know, I guess when you're an only Same child, here. a lot of, yeah, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. a little uh, bit. <laughs> But um, yeah, so my mom also, she got me a lot of um, illustrate, illustrated books and stuff. So that, those books, as well as my grandma, were like my main sources of entertainment and exploration. And so, um, and a lot of uh, the books, too, were about Japanese American stories or Japanese folklore, as well as other, other kinds of fantasy um, narratives. But uh, I think it kind of subconsciously made it like oh it's okay to be Japanese it's okay to explore these stories and some of the books were written by Japanese authors or Japanese American authors one of my favorite ones is um Gyo Fujikawa who is um she was a illustrator that was kind of ahead of her time she was like pre-world war ii she like did uh illustrations of children of, of different backgrounds that was like you know before it was uh like man mandated by publishing houses to do that um and she illustrated for Disney and stuff but you know she was amongst my little library of books um and so those are still to this day like very formative for my style and content of my work um, so yeah, I was kind of guided to continue along the path of drawing. Um, I went to Denver School of the Arts for middle school and high school, which kind of gave me some foundation technically for drawing, uh, but I really went more originally in the direction of realistic portraiture, um, because I think I was encouraged as well as like just told like you know you're really good at this kind of style you should do that and so I and they were like by and this has kind of been like a learning process for me in general of learning what is um an exterior voice versus an interior voice mm -hmm. and trusting what is my what are my own personal gifts versus ones that you know very well-meaning mentors see but they see it you know in their own kind of lens so mm -hmm. I went in the direction of realistic portraiture which I got totally burnt out 
from because it's not um if anyone is familiar with my artwork it has like a little bit more of a whimsical kind of yeah it has Japanese motifs in it it also has like fantasy elements and so that is not (laughs) realistic portraiture um but that is something that I drew from when I was very very little um but I got very like burnt out basically quit drawing for four years and I when I returned back to it I was like I'm just gonna you know like dip my toe in like kind of had like this like wounded experience I guess with art and like real relearning what I wanted to draw and so that's kind of what I do now it's um they're very much like illustrations I guess I would have liked to have seen when I was younger um and I hear that too it's like very healing for me as well as other individuals who see my artwork when they say oh I see myself in this mm-hmm. or I I they buy um some Japanese American families will buy my artwork for their children to have in their rooms um because it kind of hits this inner child sort of note um because it does have contemporary American it's not really like pop culture American but um it's not like ancient Japanese mm-hmm. either it, it has it exists in a little bit more of a modern space um so yeah that's what I do with my artwork do you have a favorite like of, I mean it's well maybe this is an unfair thing to say because this would be like you know trying to choose a favorite of like your you know your animal family <laughs> your, your your animal children do you have like a favorite piece that you've created or a fair like a favorite character from your from one of your pieces one that I like come back to somewhat often is titled kizuna kizuna means um ties or bonds between people um, and cultures and um folks can look at this on my website but it's a depiction of like this large turtle it's like in the ocean with like um like trees and stuff growing out of its back it's kind of like a um nod to turtle island um looking up at a rabbit in the moon and on the sides of it are these two omusubi which are like knots um and it's kind of in this sort of starry scene but um it's actually one of the few illustrations that I don't have the original for anymore um because the piece was done as a gift for a mentor of mine um, who was at the time uh, retiring from the department chair of ethnic studies. Um, and this is uh, Dr. Donna Martinez. And I my, my degree is in ethnic studies. And she uh, really guided me towards just like bettering myself in the program. Um, but she's Cherokee and I'm Japanese American, and, uh, like, for instance, the, um, the rabbit in the moon appears in both folklores, and so that is kind of, the whole piece is about those overlappings in people's cultures, people's experiences, and also the folklore that, um, folkloric motifs. There's also kind of hinted in the upper right, um, the constellation Pleiades um, in both cultures is significant um, for 
uh, for like the average consumer uh, in Japanese Pleiades is um, Subaru or Subaru. And that's why it has the seven. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, it has like more significance than that. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Well, I'll make sure that that's this is this will all be linked into the show notes. And that's really special that that was something that you were able to like give the original to somebody that was so important to you. I love that. Well, let's kind of continue with some of the um, the art, but this is going to be more into maybe a different type of art form. I would love to hear about Zoto. So, uh, yes, this is an encore run of a immersive theater experience that is um, that I co-produced um, as a member of the Japanese Arts Network. There are also other producing partners. This all kind of came about, this is a really kind of the passion project of my good friend, Courtney Ozaki, who is the uh, head of the Japanese Arts Network. If you've never been to immersives, it's it's a different sort of experience, um, but it incorporates um, all the senses and a, um, it is a linear kind of narrative. So you do go from one um, space and forward as the narrative progresses. And it is on the upper level of Sakura Square. Um, for people who have been in Denver for a really long time, it is in the space that used to be Kyoto restaurant, but it has since evolved into different kinds of office spaces. But um, we were kind of given full reign of this space um, because there is a redevelopment of the square um, scheduled at some point in time. We'll see when that happens because it's sort of been like this ongoing process yeah. for a very long time. But um it is a unique layout that really worked well for us um, in terms of making a progressive set. And I was originally brought on um, kind of like as a cultural consultant, as well as a concept designer yeah. for some of the spaces, but it quickly progressed into a lot more than that. Mm -hmm. And I've done set design, as well as scent design. So these rooms and spaces are scented. Um, I've created props for it. I've, for instance, there's several magazines that you might encounter at the beginning of your experience that I have written. I functioned as a cultural consultant in the way of like, would this be aligned with Japanese folklore and Japanese um magical kinds of traditions uh would this look does it fit I does guess fit. Mm -hmm. so what and, is the story of what is like the immersive experience built around and if you could also include for folks that are maybe um familiar with Colorado like where where in town is this this located like the kind of the cross streets and area for folks that maybe are local but they're not familiar with this particular area yeah so the story follows um it is a historical supernatural fiction that uh, <laughs> follows three generations of Japanese American women um, that have kind of been disconnected through 
space, time, historical trauma, and there's a healing that occurs throughout the story. Um, and so through this story, you also encounter yokai, which are commonly like thought of as like Japanese cryptids slash supernatural mm -hmm. creatures, but it is actually a very much broader term than that. It applies to semi-supernatural phenomena as well. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's sort of the story. I can't give too much away with totally. like, no, that's so we can um, fight. It's really to see it. <laughs> it's immersive. It's historical. It's supernatural, and you should go to it. And it incorporates smell and writing. Did, did I mention that Akemi is multi talented? I think that you are, are all understanding now why I was so excited to talk with her. Um, that is so rad. So, where in town is this located? Yeah. So it is in Sakura Square, which is kind of um, it is between. Uh, 19th and 20th um, Larimer and Lawrence um, and that is like I said the remaining little block of mm -hmm. what was Japantown um, which became Japantown after um, after like it the Chinatown that was there also yeah. basically was wiped from the map um, and like you know I like I mentioned my father grew up in that neighborhood as many other um individuals of his age range did um and he, you know moving from different hotels to different hotels and um you know, yeah. apartment buildings just um but he remembers when it was so substantial that there were three circles three dancing circles at obon obon is a uh summer holiday uh slash festival when uh your ancestors come to this world so that families can be together you know <laughs> during that time it's like when the veil is thin but as part of that holiday there's dancing involved and usually you dance around a yagura um, which is kind of like a tower or um you know you go down the street but he remembers when there were three circles three yagura all the way down um that neighborhood um but yeah, so that is where Zoto is based. And it is super exciting to see that it is now um, going for another Encore run. And uh, just that it has been so well received because it's, uh, I think immersives have a unique quality to them that people are able to relate to stories in a way that is different from like reading in a textbook or from a, uh, you know, in, in a classroom sort of setting and really sort of driving home the idea that this is a American or an, a human story. It is not just a Japanese story too. And seeing how people can relate in that empathetic sort of a way. That is so cool. I can, so I, for everyone who's interested in this, I am going to be linking where you can buy tickets because the, the dates are, it starts in July, right? Does it run through the entire month of July? It does. Yeah. So it starts on the 6th and it ends on the 30th, but it is only for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday performances. Um, mm. And it is a smaller audience so um we've run like between like 12 to 14 audience members so it is an intimate experience as well 
Um, you are not sitting in a chair and watching um, a on a stage. You are part of the story and you can interact with the actors. You can interact with the sets, um, you know, touching, feeling, sniffing, eating. Those are all parts of the experience. Oh my gosh. That sounds so cool. So for folks who are listening, you may see me, you may see me there because I'm I'm not missing out this time. I'm not missing out. So can we you start back again, but we don't know. We never know when yeah. we have a non-car run, when it'll be, how soon. Um, you know, so really please try and hop on it <laughs> if you get the chance. You know, I always like to preach the, and this is something we'll say in our own family, is that saying someday, like always like kind of using the word someday, someday can very easily turn into regret. So like always like take advantage of the, especially when it comes to like supporting the arts, supporting small businesses, because you never, like we we have to support these things in order for them to exist. Like you kind of, it's like a give and take that sometimes runs on fairly thin margins. And so don't wait for someday in the next run of, the, of this one, people. So could we go back to talking about Obon? Because I had, so for folks who are listening, you're going to notice a change in some of the tone of the conversations of this podcast where I'm going to start asking folks to bring their, asking guests to bring their spooky stories or any like, just anything spooky that they want to be able to bring to the conversation. And so Akemi is the first person that I had to ask that. And she's like, well, I don't really have any personal spooky stories, but we are, happen to be in like, I don't remember exactly how you described it, but you're like, it's Japanese spooky season, which is basically Hobon. And I apologize if I paraphrased incorrectly, but I would love to hear more about this, the story, the folklore, the traditions, whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Yeah. And also if uh, this is this little bit about Hobon is not enough, I will be teaching a class on Hobon to have ritual craft coming up. There's so many things I need to get to. Oh, yes. Um, so, yeah, Obon is a uh, Japanese holiday that is, um, I mean, most of the Japanese magical sort of holidays are ancestor oriented. Um, but this one, as well as the one at the end of the year slash beginning of the year, are the big, big two. Um, so uh, there's uh, quite a few other uh global um, or like Asian festivals that are related. They're kind of all in this family of festivals that originate from the um, Yulampen or the Urabonkyo Sutra. So it is rooted in a Buddhist tradition, but um, I mentioned, you know, Urabonkyo, um, the like abbreviation of that is Bon. And then when you add O at the beginning of like Japanese words, it's an honorific. So Obon is the holiday that is based on this sutra. And it is practiced um, kind of with nods to events that happen in the sutra, which tells a story of a um, Buddhist mystic whose um, he receives knowledge that his mother is kind of in turmoil in the afterworld, afterlife. And he is given the advice to uh, chant, um, to um, 
pray, to give offerings of food to um, her spirit, as well as other spirits that are in turmoil to kind of uh, release her from this afterlife suffering. And when, um, you know, she she's like relieved of it, there is dancing and um, a celebration of this. Um, and so in Obon, there are, again, offerings of food and dancing is a very big part of it. So we call that Obon Orori. Orori is the kind of dancing. Um, and so, yeah, during this time of the year, and it's funny too, um, if anyone is familiar with uh, the history of Japan, uh, we do not uh, celebrate Lunar New Year because uh, during the Meiji Restoration, they switched from a lunar calendar to the Gregorian calendar. And so there is a little bit of wiggle room when it comes to different like sacred holidays. Mm -hmm. So there is Obon in July and there is Obon in August. So in Colorado at the Tri-State Denver Buddhist Temple, they're doing uh, Obon Orori on August 5th. Mm -hmm. But really, you know, when you come to like a Nikkei, Nikkei is the meaning of, is like Japanese ethnically outside of Japan, like mm -hmm. the diaspora, Nikkei celebrations of Obon, it can range like all the way from the beginning of July to the end of August. So you see, you could just travel and just like, if you really wanted to like celebrate for like an extended period of time, it sounds like you, it sounds like you could. Oh yeah, absolutely. So like, you know, I just came back from LA and there is a Obon festival every single weekend through like, yeah, beginning of July to end of August, all across the state. And like people go to multiple of them. It's awesome. Yeah. So especially in communities that are much larger than we have in Colorado, um, like particularly up and down the West Coast, there's just this very long celebration of Obon. <laughs> um, and yeah, so you often go to you know, your temple and uh, experience service and you do offerings of food and then there are dances. I mentioned that there's the type that kind of goes in a circle mm -hmm. as well. It's sort of like people kind of equate it to like line dancing, but it doesn't have that kind of um it's a folk dance so they're all of these are folk dances so within the choreography and music of the obono dori there's they're telling stories of the past as well as now to some stories for the future um and it's really interesting too when you look at the obons that are celebrated in the americas and also you know there's other areas that do this as well but you start seeing kinds of musical influences of like latin music you hear um stories about uh isei immigrants you hear stories about of hometowns you know fishing towns coal mining towns etc so again it's kind of bringing it into a movement history and like a auditor and like it's 
yeah, an oral history, movement history, music history sort of thing, all in the same sort of event. Um, many folks, though, even if they are not Buddhist, will practice Obon. Um, I think this is something that I talk about a lot in my like Japanese animism and majutsu class that the hist like the spiritual history in Japan is very um, mixed. And so it's really hard to tease out some of the practices because there's been such a overlapping of like indigenous Japanese animistic practices, as well as what is now called Shinto, as well as Buddhism. And so things all start to mix and many folks like, you know, we'll just go to a bone for fun um, because there is dancing and music yeah. and food. Um, but for others, it's also a spiritual holiday. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. What's your favorite? Like, do you have like a favorite thing that you feel comfortable sharing of when, I mean, so is like two-part question. What's your favorite thing, but also is Obon something that is meant to be primarily celebrated with community or is it something also that's like your personal practice within your home, like certain things that you would do to honor that holiday or that season within the home, like both kind of like what's the pub, public versus private and also what your, maybe your favorite jam, part of the whole, your, your favorite jam of the whole thing. Yeah, um, for me, one of my favorite bits is being able to be in community because for for like for my experience being in Colorado um because you know we don't have a robust Japantown anymore a lot of folks have moved out from the center of that community uh it's a lot more dispersed it's one of the few events where you can see everybody at the same time mm. um but uh in terms of practice, it is a communal sort of a thing, but there are things that you do in your home, like particular offerings to your altar um, and uh, that are specific to the ancestors that you are honoring. So it is your, um, your own family members that are coming back to your home. You have, um, there is a welcoming fire that you are supposed to uh, light as well as a sending away fire. Those can be done um, in a communal sort of way, but you can also do it individually. But the concept too is that like the souls are returning for this holiday to spend time with their families. And so you need to put out a beacon in your home for them to co come to you. Otherwise yep. they'll just kind of wander and they don't really know where they're going. And so that is like one of the things that you do with is like a fire at the beginning to tell them, Hey, we're here. And actually when you are, you have a loved one that has passed and it is their first Obon, yeah. uh, you will probably, you, there's a practice of lighting these fires through the entirety of the holiday so it is like a three to four day holiday depending on what you your own personal practice is but you're welcoming them in and then you are providing food for them that you know is specific to every individual is like what would you like what did you enjoy in your life it's really interesting too and in some of the other festivals that are not specifically open but that are in the general like Asian 
festival holidays that um, there's a concept of offering things that they would like, you would imagine that your ancestors would have enjoyed, but weren't invented in this time period, in their time period. Yeah, like y'all um, got to try this. Like, seriously, have you all ever had a Twinkie? Like, come on in. Like, you would, <laughs> you would have loved it. I know you would have loved it. <laughs> uh, so it's very, it's those sorts of things in the home are specific to your yeah. home. Um, yeah, and uh, the dancing is fun too. I mean, some people get, um, self-conscious about it but there is usually like within the inner circle of the dancing um there is a menial group which is a bunch of dancers that are doing the dances so that you can watch them and copy them yeah um, and you know it's like a open I feel like when half of the people don't know what they're doing and they're all looking over to the center of the circle because it, then it's like just great that you came anyways. Heck yeah. Um, of anything that involves like dancing in groups. I'm a very like social, socially anxious person, but I also like if there's a, a group activity or something like that, and especially anything that involves movement, like sign me up. That sounds so fun. That sounds so incredibly fun. So I guess my my last question would be, and this is going to be, I guess, kind of going going into thinking about ancestors, thinking about you know generations that are still here, but maybe aspects of their contributions have have gone unrecognized. I know that the one thing that you just got back from that we were kind of talking about, like how do we fit this in? But it's it's worthwhile and it's so cool. Is something called Go for Broke. And I was wondering if, of course, there'll be time for you to talk at the very end. Make sure you you stay tuned for Akemi talking about all of the classes that she has coming up and other things that maybe we've just barely touched on. But I do want to make sure we have a chance to talk about Go for Broke and why it's important to you. Yep. So uh, Go for Broke um, is a phrase that was said by a lot of um, Nisei military. Nisei is the se second generation but when we're talking about Japanese American history, they are these generational terms are very specific to um, certain generations and time periods. So Nisei are the born in the United States that were kind of in their late teens, early twenties, obviously during World War II. And so that is a phrase go for broke that was said by like individuals in the 100th battalion as well as 442nd and MIS in that time period and it kind of just means like you know everything out there just like to go forward without abandon that is also the name now of the go for broke national education center in LA it is at the forefront of my mind yes because I just came back from a major like community building and empathetic awareness as well as historical context kind of convening uh, that is called the Torchbearers. And this was their inaugural convening. So they've had this group in LA for a, a little while, but now they're kind of going national. And there are groups that were brought from Chicago, Vermont, San Francisco, LA, Honolulu, Denver, that all came together during this this weekend. And the Denver group was represented by the Sakura Foundation, which is kind of the local organization here that is related to Sakura Square. What this organization does, as well as like the torchbearers, it centers the story of the Nisei veterans 
in terms of how do we build community and understanding and progressive awareness as we move forward. And for those of you who aren't kind of familiar with that story, um, it's really not so much of a, a story of military involvement and more a story about personal values and concepts of sacrifice because again I guess go all the way back to World War II. Pearl Harbor gets bombed there's immediate understanding among Japanese American communities that this does not look good yeah Um, and that there will soon be a like there's something going to happen that probably will not bode well for them and so then they go into the camps and you know here imprisoned and then of course the american government asks you to serve they're looking for people to battlefields and kind of ask really tears families apart so there are individuals who are like if i serve this will prove that we're american and that we can get let out of the camps. There's folks that are like, I can't possibly leave my family. Uh, Like, you know, I'm the first um, born child. All of our businesses are in our names, my name, because they did not allow um, the first generation to own property. Families that say like, like, how could you possibly ask me to do this sort of thing? So it tears families apart. And then uh, there is who volunteer, um, like the 442nd now is still to this date, the highest decorated unit of its size, because there was that um, kind of attitude. And also they were expendable to the American government because, you know, who cares if a bunch of Japanese young men go and die? American government is like, ah. It doesn't matter. We got the job done. But there is also this strong desire to prove themselves. Mm-hmm. And there's also a group that were the no-no boys who answered this questionnaire, uh, this very contradictory kind of question. It was like, will you serve? Will you uh, denounce your Japanese citizenship with which many of them were not even Japanese citizens to begin with. So they're like, no. Um, it, so that kind of progresses forward. You know, a story about individual choice and agency. But then even after the camps and after the war finishes, there is this the connected story of redress. And Japanese Americans are one of the few individuals who has been able to get reparations from the government for injustices that were done to them. Yeah. It's just like sort of this perfect storm of these Nisei veterans that created their loyalty and blood coming into positions of political power, um, particularly like Senator Inouye and other, um, individuals who are now like some of the folks who curfew to demonstrate that it's like, this is unjust. I'm not going to the camps. Then those individuals are now lawyers. They're like very, it's kind of this perfect storm of people coming into professional positions of power 
also the community building aspect uh, with the civil rights movement. It's a very like sort of complex, like everything coming together at the right time. And it is of, of other of color also supporting during um, hearings and sessions on this concept of reparations. It's a uniquely American sort of story, but like I said, it's not as much about military patriotism, but it's about communities working together. Yeah. It's very inspiring. You know, there's a lot of sorts of of division because, you know, all are impacted in different ways that how do you actually move forward or make progress on these sorts of subjects? This particular period in time that Go For Broke focuses on is a prime example of that, that there has to be some sort of collaborative building. Yeah. And also, how do you make the system work for you? It's there's a lot of people who are on the activist sort of platform. And I think that is absolutely necessary to like change the system, fundamentally change the Mm -hmm. structure of it. But there's also a lot of work that has to be done to do that. So what can people do in the meantime to action to make progress too there has to be like both parties right absolutely absolutely yeah for the nisei's i guess there's also these people were dying off at a particular rate i think when they were first breaching the subject of redress there it was estimated like that 200 isei the first generation were dying a month and so they're like this this project is like four years out how are we going to yeah um, you know, you can't write laws in that amount of time. So how do we kind of move forward in a different way? If people want to learn, I mean, so if, if people want to learn more about the history, which I'm including myself, because so much of this is like, sadly, information to me, but if we want to be able to learn about the redress, the reparations, the history of like how that happened, where is go for broke a good a good resource to be able to find like information about that or are there other sources that you'd recommend for us yeah absolutely go for broke i would say is like the primary one for this yeah. particular story as well as i would suggest looking into dential.org uh that's like kind of the primary japanese japanese american archival resource um yeah so my website is uh com. that is uh kind of where you can generally learn more about me you can buy my artwork on there but um i am most active like on a daily basis on instagram my instagram is akemi ct art um people kind of like read it as akemi c tart even though that's not <laughs> is um it started because my my athlete slash professional like personal instagram was akemi ct because those are my initials and then i made like an art account on top of it but now it's you know whatever but uh i'm most active like on a daily basis on that and that's where i post uh if i'm going to be at different events and so forth uh yep zoto is coming up and starts on the 6th then uh, shortly after that, I'm in a 
it's like a pre-show entertainment for Sunset Cinemas. It's a Denver Film Center kind of project. I sing as well. So that's what I'm doing. What? And we're just now getting to this. Everyone is listening. She sings as well. Multi-talented. <laughs> so that's then happening. And then I will be at Dragon Boat Festival with a booth. That is on the 22nd to 23rd at Sloan's Lake. And then I have several um, classes at Ritual Craft coming up. Uh, as I mentioned, there's the Obon one. There is one on Daruma making. Daruma are, um, they are like these, you've definitely seen them. They're like red, usually red dolls that are, have, like you fill in one eye and then you fill in the other when you achieve the goal that you had set on the first eye but uh they i think are like one of the first um magical workings that people engage with because it's so easy like most times they're like pre-made and you like just fill in one eye and then set your I have to tell you, so I have an aunt who's Japanese and she and my uncle, uh, they lived, um, they, they lived in Japan for like my entire growing up. They now live in Aurora, but, uh, my uncle had brought me one of those, like one of the first times he came back stateside and I was so, I still haven't painted the damn thing because it was so special. And I'm like, even as a little kid, I'm like, this is this magical thing. I really need to think about it. And he really like, you know, drill, you know, he and my aunt really drilled it in. Like, you know, you think about it. And then I'm, I still have, I still have to this day, haven't used it. And I've had that thing since I was like eight. <laughs> it's so funny. But anyway. They're so cute. Um, yeah. So we'll be, um, you know, learning about Dharma and also, um, how to make your own and kind of make like you know how does it fit into your personal practice you know if you're not a Japanese magical practitioner how can that still be applicable to your own uh, path um, so that and then after that will be uh, Ohigan slash Ohagi making class Ohigan is another ancestor holiday as most holidays are but um and I'm learning about that it's a it's a spring and fall equinox kind of uh holiday so there's one a spring ohigan and a fall ohigan and there is a sacred offering that you make at both that uh have a different name depending on what time of the year it is in spring it's called botan mochi botan are um peonies because they come out mm -hmm. in the spring. Um, and then in the fall, it is called ohagi. Um, and it's like a like roughly pounded rice. It's like sweet rice that is covered in um, red bean paste. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can eat them too, but they are also the things that you're supposed to offer to mm -hmm. the ancestors. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we'll be making those in that class. Um, there's a lot of, food and kitchen witchery and in Japanese culture so that's that'll be the focus of that class I love that once again ritual craft school and head on to the show notes well thank you so much Akemi for coming and chatting with me and for your you know taking the time too to just like freaking educate me everybody educating everybody else who's listening and just being so open and vulnerable with you know everything that you shared you're 
you're freaking badass and a delight. And so I'm just, I'm grateful for the time that you, you took to chat with me today. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Magical World. Let's keep in touch. The best way to keep up with me is by signing up for my email list on my website, sterlingmoontarot.com. That's where you can book appointments for tarot readings, spirit contact sessions, and more. Find out about my classes and programs and all sorts of other things. I'm also active on the socials. You can find me on Instagram at the underscore sterling underscore moon and on Facebook and YouTube at Sterling Moon Tarot. In the meantime, I wish you well as you find your own ways to make the world more magical.